Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You again for bringing us here today that we can worship together as Your body, as the body of Christ in spirit and in truth to uh, <clears throat> tune our hearts to sing Your praise, to also prepare our hearts for the receiving of Your Word, and um, that we can recognize together that it cleanses us, it gives us life, it gives us hope, it reminds us, most importantly, Lord, that of who You are, that You are our God, and that You and that we are Your people. So I pray that that very truth will be reinforced this morning and that your saints will leave refreshed as the Word of God goes forward. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Alright, well, once again, good to be with you to open up together in God's Word. So go ahead and make your way to 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy. Um, we have recently finished, last Lord's Day in fact, our our grand exhaustive series on marriage. And today we're going to move into other things. And as, as is customary, whenever I get done with a, uh, a certain series, topical or book or otherwise, um, it's very pleasant, it's very encouraging to simply preach Jesus to you. And that's what you're going to get this morning. I'm here to preach Christ. Our text comes from chapter 3. Start at verse 14. We'll read through verse 16 together. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So we're going to focus our concentration today on verse 16. And as the uh, title of today's sermon clearly communicates, by common confession, these are things that we confess together. We are, after all, a confessional church. Our confession is the second, not the first, but the second London Baptist Confession of 1689. And those are the things, while, while they are, while, while certainly the confession is not the Word of God, it is not our final authority, it explains what it, what we believe as a church that the Word of God is saying concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you read through the confession, you'll find it very handy as sort of a miniature systematic theology pertaining to the things that we believe. And so Scripture is no difference. In fact, you wonder, where do we get confessions from? A confession isn't something from the imagination of man. Confessions are in the Scriptures. And we come to verse 16 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we find what Paul labels a common confession. A common confession. Also thought by many scholars and theologians that this is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of the church hymns. But this was something that was actually sung together. And while we don't know the tune, we certainly can see if we explore this carefully, what great truths are unpacked. And I think it's very important for Paul to lay this out to Timothy. We find that Timothy, remember, is a young elder 
He is one of the pastors of the church in Ephesus, and we find that he is going through a very difficult time. And one of the major things that not only an elder, but a Christian must do in the face of great spiritual opposition is remind himself continually, continually and freely of the most foundational truths of the Christian faith. Because within that foundation, or in with those foundations, we find some of the most encouraging things concerning who God is. Those are the truths that keep us grounded. Those are the truths that keep our minds focused on the centrality of the person and work of Christ. It is reminding ourselves afresh of those things that prevent us from being tempted away from the purity of the gospel. It's those foundational truths that prevent us from thinking that somehow this is about us. It's those foundational truths that keep us from second-guessing their reliability. And what Timothy is going through is not unique in any sense. Anyone throughout the ages, Old and New Testament, who has dared to speak on behalf of God, has faced resistance. And what makes Timothy's uh, predicament particularly dire is he's getting this pushback from other church leaders. If you read in the opening of the book, Paul writes to him, chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. He has leadership teaching strange doctrines foreign to what God has instructed. And then he says this, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. One thing that stands out is how confident these... I mean, this is, this is the most dangerous type of person, right? An ignorant man with a Bible. A person who really, really wants to teach. Who really, really wants to be behind the pulpit or on the soapbox or wherever. But he has no idea what he's talking about. This is a man who is not grounded by a fundamental confession of who Jesus Christ is. He is not a man who speaks on behalf of God as the Holy Spirit gives him utterance. But who is to stand in the face of those men but godly Christians who know the Word, who, who love the Lord, who have a good conscience, who love the church, and are grounded by a gospel confession and are not dragged away into mere speculation. We never want to be a church that speculates. We never want to be a church where we're just unclear about what God is saying, even though we recognize that there are very difficult texts in Scripture. But what God has written in His Word is clear, especially concerning Jesus Christ. The very foundation of our faith. The very rock of our salvation. And when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we realize what this great backbone is of the Christian faith. What we are reading here is not merely a hymn. right? It's not merely words to be recited. These, this is a confession, friends, that is indispensable to the Christian faith. And it simply proclaims what Jesus Christ has done. 
And what Jesus Christ has done is indispensable to the Christian faith. And yet it must be confessed, it must be proclaimed by Christians as the body of Christ. And so Paul says, by common confession. And of course, that means to be the, to say the same thing, not merely to agree with or acknowledge. It means that we are saying together the same things about Jesus, and these are the most paramount of those things. And this hymn, of course, says a lot. And we'll try to unpack it in a reasonable time. But what Paul is making here are six statements about Jesus Christ that would constitute indisputable doctrine that bound the early church together. And I would certainly hope it is the same doctrine that binds the 21st century church together. These are non-negotiables, and to deny any of these tenets would be to step outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy and therefore disqualify one from the fellowship. These are truths that still stand today and are extremely significant for the stability and advancement of the church. And of course, what one believes concerning the work of Christ is of supreme significance. And it's important we believe and say the same thing. Now, the things we're getting into, we would say, are very basic. In a sense, this sermon is Christianity 101. I I would dare say that most of what I say today are things you already know, and they are probably things you already believe. But in the spirit of Peter, what does he say in Second Peter? I'm not, I'm not writing these things because you don't know them, right? I think that might be First John. You do know them. Peter says the same thing, right? He reminds them. He, want, he wants the saints to call to mind these things, lest they be put aside, lest they be relegated to some secondary importance. And so I can stand here today and remind you of these supreme truths. And so Paul says this, by common confession. Another way of saying that this is beyond all question. It is indisputable that we believe this. Right? Hence why you need to stand and confront these false teachers, Timothy. What we're teaching is beyond dispute. It has been established. It is the Word of God. And you must confront those who deny it. And so this confession becomes essential. That's the first thing. It is an essential confession. We've already said you can't deny these things and call yourself a Christian. So what we, what we are teaching here today regarding Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. You cannot live without it. You cannot be in the faith and deny these things. Furthermore, if we deny any of these things, the picture of who Jesus Christ is becomes increasingly blurred and unclear. We do not preach a vague Jesus. We do not preach an unclear Jesus. We do not preach a, a Jesus of our own imagination. We preach a Jesus as Scripture has proclaimed Him. So it is essential we believe in and preach the same Jesus. Secondly, not only is it essential, but it is public. This confession that Paul gives here is public. That is, we confess it amongst ourselves as well as to outsiders. We continue to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. We continue to preach the truth of who He is to one another and to those who do not know Him. It's not a, it's not a confession that we hide. It's not a confession that we are ashamed of. Think of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because what? It is power. It is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. For in it, right? In it, this is where the power is revealed. 
In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's righteousness where that power is revealed. And so we don't want to hide that. We don't want to keep that secret. We want to go public with that. Because we understand that the power of that message is conducive to transforming this world. And that lends itself to the third thing. The confession is essential, public, and thirdly, it is universal. That means we take it into every sphere of life. We harp on this continually. The confession, this confession of Jesus' person and work, His Lordship, all that pertains to Him is universal. Everywhere we go, whether in our private life, right, our home, our homes, family, church, where this has been ironically forgotten, take it into our workplace, education, entertainment, everywhere, Christ is to be proclaimed truthfully and clearly and unashamedly in His person and work. That's why this confession is universal. It is meant for all of creation. And this, of course, is underscores the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes on to say this, by common confession, great, great is the mystery of godliness. Now remember here, we think of mystery typically as a secret, something that is hidden, something that is concealed. The, the New Testament understands a mystery as something that was once concealed but is now being revealed. So in modern parlance, it's not a mystery any longer. It is something that has been unveiled. And Paul has already talked to Timothy about the mystery of the faith, right? The mystery of, of the faith that has been made clear, the body of teaching concerning Christ's person and work and how that truth governs the church. And so I think Paul, when he says here the mystery of godliness, I think he's going even farther than simply saying the mystery of the faith. He's talking more about just doctrine and teaching. He says godliness here for a reason because he's saying that, that, that this truth pertains to godliness, that it is the outworking of faith, that this truth leads one, it is the very bedrock to leading a godly life. It's not just teaching. We never want to think of Christian doctrine as something that is merely static, right? We understand truth as something that transforms. Doctrine is life-transforming truth. As Philip Towner writes, godliness is a more expansive, less static idea. It includes the faith, but goes a decisive step further to link a certain Christian manner of life to it, right? So that reminds us, of course, that we can't just say, yes, this is true, I agree with it, and then, and then walk away from it as if we, as if it has no import, as if it has no impact on our lives. Truth is meant to transform our lives. And so the best way to understand this statement, this mystery of godliness, is that Christ is the manifestation and source of all that is God-centered. Because it's very true. We want to live a God-centered life. We want our attention, our purpose, our mission, our living, everything about human life to pertain to God, right? That nothing is outside of the bounds and administration and sovereign power of God. Everything belongs to Him. And so we truly want a God-centered life. But that is only possible through understanding that Christ is at the center of that. Understanding who Christ is, is paramount. It is essential to the godly life. 
Godliness is revealed in Christ's person and work. And notice, and notice Paul's use here of the word great. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, he's not saying this for out, without reason. When Paul was ministering in the city of Ephesus, this is from Acts 19.28, he gets confronted by the pagans in the city. And what do they say? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Right? They were trying to distract him. They were trying to shout him down. Typical of the world today. If you don't like what you're hearing, you don't reason with the person, you just shout them down, right? Whoever is the loudest wins. So they try to drown him out. Great is the great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, a lot of people go around saying how great this or, or that is. But Paul brings Timothy back to where this true greatness lies. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the God-centered life. That is made possible through Jesus Christ. That is what is truly great. It's vital that we understand this. It's vital that the mystery of godliness is searched and beheld and known and treasured. Listen to what Paul has to say in the final chapter of this book. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, see that? Doctrine conforming to godliness. There is a teaching... Right? As opposed to other teachings that conform to godliness. He is conceited and understands nothing. You see this? He's not merely misguided. He's not merely naive or mistaken. No, there is a character flaw that is attached to denying this doctrine conforming to godliness. He is conceited and understands nothing. And isn't it amazing how often the church is suckered into following people who are like this? who understand nothing and are conceited. And sometimes we are reminded too late. But listen to this. This person has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Speculation, right? Nothing's really clear. Nothing's really grounded. Nothing's really certain. But the problem is, the out of this arises envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. You know, of course, personal, personal gain, personal riches. But then Paul goes on, of course, uh, to correct that when he says, in fact, godliness is a means of great gain, right? They're almost underestimating its effect when it's con- accompanied by contentment in an ironic twist. Key of the point of godliness is not to enrich oneself. It is to be a reflection of our contentment in God Himself. And so the key to this godliness is centered in Christ, and so we want to know the true Christ. And that all leads up to this great confession, this confession of what it means to have a God-centered life. And so you notice here there's three, there's three sections, or you say three couplets, And if you read various commentators, it is amazing. It is amazing how hotly this section is debated. Like the, the flow of, the flow of the hymn, right? What, what line belongs with the other? What complements what? And of course, most of that will skip and I'll simply just proclaim to you what Christ has done. But in breaking this down a little bit, just so we understand the flow of Paul's thought, the first two lines, 
He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit. I would call that the accomplishment of Christ's work. The mystery of godliness, the accomplishment of Christ's work. Couplet number two, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. The announcement of Christ's work. Couplet number three, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The acknowledgement of Christ's work. So you have the accomplishment, the announcement, and the acknowledgement. You see, and all this focuses on focuses on Christ's work, which is the key to unraveling the mystery of the God-centered life. You want to be godly? Know Jesus Christ. Very simply put. So the first thing here, under this accomplishment, is that Jesus was revealed in the flesh, or manifested. And when Jesus was manifested in the flesh, He is displaying the very majesty of Almighty God. This is speaking of the doctrine of the Incarnation, right? These are indisputable truths. You cannot be a Christian and deny the Incarnation. You cannot be a Christian and deny this amazing fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was always in the eternal plan of God's of God's redemption that the second person of the Trinity would add humanity to His deity and become Savior of the world. It's fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 where the virgin will conceive and give birth. His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And truly in Christ, God was with us. He tabernacled among us. So for God to save man, He had to become a man because it was man who fell into sin. And for man to ever be saved from his sin, there had to be a fitting sacrifice for sin. But that sacrifice had to be a man. If man sinned, he had to pay the penalty. The problem is, is that there is no such thing, for the exception of Jesus Christ, of a truly righteous man. No man could be the spotless lamb to pay for our sin, to provide an acceptable sacrifice except for Jesus Christ. So God needed to take on human flesh. Otherwise, we remain in sin and we remain hopelessly and utterly lost. That's why you can't be a Christian and deny the Incarnation. And here's another thing. Here's another dimension of this. Listen to 1 John 3.8. He writes this, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Sometimes we forget that. It was a man. A man had to destroy the work of the devil. It was, it was a man, after all, who invited the work of the devil into creation. Who surrendered dominion to Satan. And so then it would be a man who would come back in and take that dominion back. If Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, the works of the devil would continue unabated and would continue to dominate this world. Without Jesus Christ appearing, without the incarnation, without this manifestation in the flesh, there would be no crushing of the serpent's head. There would be no victory. There would be no destruction of His work. And so this could only be done by a man in accordance with God's promises. How do we know? Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We know that. And so to deny the humanity of Jesus Christ, to deny the incarnation, is to deny the very promise of God coming to fulfillment. You deny the very means by which God would redeem man and vanquish the devil. 
This is so important to our understanding of who Jesus is and what He has done that John later writes this, 1 John 4, 2-3, through by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. And we see this still preached today, a denial of a denial of the reality of who Jesus is. And so it prevails upon the church right, to, to be like Timothy and to stand firm on these most essential teachings regarding Christ and to not back off from them or fear their, the intimidation of those who deny their truth. Listen to what Hebrews 10.5 says regarding this. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. This is Christ talking. A body you have prepared for me. A body by which I can offer myself as a pure and once for all sacrifice on the altar of God. He who was revealed in the flesh. So we preach the incarnation. We preach the humanity of Christ and all that He accomplished as the true Son of Man and Son of God. Here's the second thing. He says it is he is vindicated in the Spirit. And this is probably one of the most difficult to unpack. Because some translations will say he was vindicated by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit vindicated or, or bore witness to what was testified of Christ concerning his person and work. And of course, we understand that, uh, that the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary so that Christ was conceived. Um, we see the Holy Spirit active everywhere in the life of Christ. Even before His life by speaking through the prophets. We see the Holy Spirit um, land, uh, alight on Christ as a dove during His baptism. The Holy Spirit empowers Him for the work of ministry, miracles. right? And we finally see this come to a culmination in His resurrection. Rising in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think the resurrection is what is most key here. And I think this kind of tells us what Paul is getting at. So I take the interpretation um, that this is vindicated in in the Spirit. Basically, the the supernatural realm, what we call the invisible realm. That this was a, a place, a dimension of Christ's vindication. This is Paul's main thrust. That is, it was a, it was a declaration, a testimony that what, that who Christ said He is, is True. And think about all the things Christ said concerning Himself. He said a lot of things. Among them, that He would be scourged, right? He would be betrayed. He would be killed. And then on the third day, He would rise again. The Scriptures, He would say, testify that of Himself. He said that as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And I isolate this one because that is Jesus' biggest claim. That He would die, and that in His death, His righteous death, His sacrificial once-for-all death, He would defeat death. He would defeat sin. He would defeat hell. He would defeat the principalities and powers. And He would rise again on the third day. 
That is His vindication in the supernatural realm. He rose again. We all confess that. And this is something that was discussed even after He died. Look at Matthew 27. Now on the next day, verse 62, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when He was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. So, vindication. right? Vindication is on the line here. Someone is going to be vindicated. Someone is going to have the license to say, see, I told you so. We all hate hearing it. And sometimes we like saying it. But if Jesus remains dead, the Pharisees can say, see, He really was a deceiver. That's vindication. It's a declaration that what they said concerning Jesus would have been right and true. Thereby, in some sense, proving that the Pharisees are true and honorable teachers. On the other hand, if Jesus rises again and defeats death and sin, He is vindicated. It demonstrates that what was preached concerning Him, how He preached concerning Himself, and what He came to do was true. It was was verified. Verified in the Spirit. Now, Peter goes on to explain this as the Holy Spirit gives him utterance in the book of Acts. He says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. For David says of Him, now listen to this, this is key, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope. So what Peter is doing here is he is preaching the vindication of Christ. He is saying that this testimony concerning him was true. So you see a, a, a human, an apostle, teaching this word. Proclaiming that what Christ said was true. Now we kind of have a sort of a a supernatural point of view in the Scriptures as well. In Colossians 2, we read this, and this is during Christ's death. We have a supernatural point of view. Right? If you were, if you were standing on Golgotha and you were witnessing Christ crucified, you would have thought, oh, He's beaten. He isn't who He said He is. You would think Jesus lost you would think that his enemies had prevailed. But Paul says, during the crucifixion, this was a time when, verse 15, he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. So this is Christ disarming rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. The very powers that hold this world in darkness and and in bondage. And now Christ has taken back that authority, has taken back that dominion and rendered them powerless. And it says it's a public display. It was a universal disclosure of Christ taking authority from them and beating them. We see a closer look at this. So mark these down. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, 
having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So this is the same thing uh, that, that Paul is telling to Timothy that Peter is now enumerating to us. Something is going on in the spiritual realm, in the supernatural realm. He is made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now that is like five sermons worth of, of material of who these spirits are now in prison. But suffice it to say for our purposes here that Christ is making a proclamation of victory over his enemies. He is also proclaiming liberty to the captives, right? And so this is what is being, this is Christ's vindication. This is a look that every, at what everything he said concerning himself is true. So, so remember, Christ, when he died, when he died and rose again, was not just a victory over sin. It wasn't just a victory over death. It was also a victory against the spiritual forces of darkness when he took authority away from them. And so he went in the spiritual realm and made that proclamation to them. Romans 4 says a similar thing, that Jesus was declared in His resurrection the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this word declared from the Greek horizo means to mark out a boundary or determine or distinguish. And so the point here that Paul is making is that Christ's resurrection ended any debate or confusion about who He is. Because in His death and resurrection, Christ was vindicated. That is why we confess these things. This is why this confession is beyond dispute, is beyond debate. We preach it in truth and we preach it in power. And when Jesus rose from the dead in power, He was marked as powerful in His resurrection, becoming weak in death, becoming a servant, taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, but being raised as the powerful Son of God. And this all testifies to the fact that Jesus is who He says He is. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and there is no denying that. And so in Ephesians 1.20, Paul writes this, that these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Christ's, who, the truth of who Christ is is vindicated in the spiritual realm on the basis of His resurrection. And the importance of this cannot be underestimated because the spiritual realm that is spoken of here represents the power that held the old creation in bondage. So that when Christ is vindicated, it is the verification to those principalities and powers that He is victorious and that He is currently putting all His enemies under His feet. That's what this means. So when we proclaim Christ, we proclaim Him as Victor, we proclaim that the work is done. That's why nothing needs to be added to our gospel. Because Christ has already accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. And He has done it by Himself. Furthermore, He is seen, He is seen by angels. We think that's a, that's a pretty peculiar statement. 
And so we get to the part where we are announcing Christ's work. We find that Christ's work has been accomplished right, in the whole of creation. And now, in terms of application, what happens? Well, this work that Christ has done is now announced. It is, it is proclaimed. It is witnessed. So it says he was seen by angels. And we think that's very strange. What does that have to do? What does that have to do with our understanding of Christ? Well, I think once again, it lends himself that, it lends itself to the fact that Christ's victory, right? His lordship, right? His, the fact that he is savior is not limited to what, to the visible realm, right? He is Lord over all, visible and invisible. His victory is not merely seen only by humans. It is even seen by angels. Even super, supernatural majestic beings have to confess the truth of who Jesus is and they bear witness to Christ's life and power. And just like the Holy Spirit, angels are present at His birth. Right? Luke 2.13 Find the heavenly host proclaiming the good news that a king has been born. During his ministry, angels angels ministered to him. See, angels are no strangers to the activity of Christ. They ministered to him during his time in the wilderness, during his time in Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion. Angels were at Christ's command. Remember, Christ said, don't you think? I may seem helpless. Don't you think I could summon legions of angels? Angels are present at his resurrection. Angels are everywhere. Angels... As much as they witness, though, are, are even curious at his redemptive work, right? First Peter 1, 2 describes the work of redemption as something in which angels long to look. As timeless as they are, as perceptive as they are, there is something about the work of redemption, about raising dead men to life, that is perplexing to angels. It's what angels wish they knew. And this is pretty amazing in our experience. As, as majestic, as glorious, as powerful, as scary as angels are. That we, that we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We experience a life in God that, 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 that perplexes angels. And we think that's, that, that should be interesting because of the very things that angels see. Angels see a lot. This is very profound. You think of the way angels are depicted in Scripture. They are, they, are, they are more than our modern tragic depictions of, of, the, of these naked babies with wings. That's really, that's almost creepy. And that's a huge misunderstanding. Angels are scary the way that they are described. Listen to Ezekiel 10. This is talking about angels. The setting is, is the temple. And the glory of God is present. And there are angels there. And it says this, I think he's talking about, Ezekiel's talking about the cherubim. And he says, as for their appearance, all four of them had the same likeness as if one wheel were within another. So there were wheels. There were wheels in the sky and they were turning. Right? It was amazing. And Ezekiel didn't know where he would be tomorrow. But the wheels were there. And, and as they moved, he said, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, but they followed in the direction which they faced without turning as they went, their whole body, their backs, their hand, their wings, and wheels, listen to this, were full of eyes all around. Now get that visual. And if you can't now, Google it later. That is a frightening manifestation. But there's eyes all around. And what's the point of that? What do, what do eyes do? They see that among their various responsibilities and functions, 
one major thing these angels were created to do was to see the glory of God. So they have all these massive eyeballs all over their bodies so that they can behold the presence of God. I mean, in some sense, like, wow, what? Think, we have two eyes. But here's the blessing. We have two eyes and we can still behold the glory of God. We can behold it clearly in the person of Christ. We can look at angels and for all their majesty, for all their eyeballs. God is not holding out on us. We are not shortchanged. By the life that God gives us, the eyes we're given to see, we can behold the glory of Christ. Christ was seen by angels. Same thing is described in Revelation 4. You have these living creatures. You have eyes in front and behind. Full of eyes and within, but here's the point. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. See, even angels behold the glory of God. I think this is an indictment against those who refuse to see. I think this is especially an indictment against Christians who will just, who will just focus all their attention on anything but Christ and Him glorified. We have been given eyes to see. And yet sometimes we just refuse to pay attention to the glory of God. I mean, after all, Jesus became, He was a man, not an angel. Right? Hebrews 2.16 says as much. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the sons or the descendants of Abraham. He gives help to us. He gives eyes to see. And this fact that He is seen by angels, demonstrates that all of creation, right, visible and invisible, can bear witness to who Christ is. Can, so all the universe right, can see and behold His glory. He was seen by angels. Even, even majestic, powerful angels cannot deny, whether they are elect or evil, these angels cannot deny who He is. Elect angels cannot deny His glory. And evil angels cannot deny His reign. Because they are, they are being crushed by Him. They are being put under His authority. Here's another one. He's proclaimed across the world. So here's this proclamation. So, we have angels, and then we have nations. The Goy, the Gentiles. Right. So you have this picture here that, that, that who Christ is and His revelation and His gospel is sort of going from the closest to the farthest. If you think, what is it that dwells in closest proximity to the glory of God? It's an angel. Because they're before the throne of God day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So in the mind of, especially in the mind of a Jew, who is, who is the outcast? Who is the most hopeless? Right? Who, who cannot enjoy the presence of God because they're so unclean? That would be the Gentile. They're swine. They're no better than an animal. They're not people. They're on the, they're on the outside. They can only come so close and no farther. But this is this universal witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His name is proclaimed throughout all the world, throughout all creation. That his offer of salvation by grace through faith, this invitation to come into the kingdom in the name of Christ is now offered to all. That's very important. We proclaim the gospel, right? We never, we never assume when we preach the good news that, that someone is so hopeless that they are beyond saving. Christ saves all manner of people. And as I say, if He saved you, 
He can save anyone. We have to think of our gospel in that kind of perspective. If he saved a miserable, hopeless wretch like you, how much more can he save that other guy? But such is, such is the mercy of God. Such is his grace revealed in the gospel as, as it is proclaimed to the nations. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. I wonder if the psalmist was perplexed by that. What? The nations? <laughs> yes, the nations. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. So even the nations will not fall outside His jurisdiction. They will not fall outside his, the, the, the boundaries of His saving work. And we never want to deny that awesome truth in our gospel proclamation and teaching. Psalm 98, the Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nation. So even the, the mystery of godliness is going to be unveiled, unveiled and made real in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so it is also preached in Isaiah 42, he will not be disheartened, speaking of the Messiah, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Right? This is how he has designed the gospel. This is, this is how the Lord, in his sovereign power, in his sovereign grace, how he has, de how he has designed salvation to come to fruition. It would not stay isolated to Israel. It would go to the ends of the earth. And this, my friends, is carried out through the Great Commission. The Great Commission makes perfect sense in light of what the Old Testament reveals about it. Salvation will go to the ends of the earth. It will not stay contained to Samaria. It will not, you know, or Jerusalem or Israel. It will go, it will go to the ends of the earth. That's his promise in Acts 1-8. You will be my witnesses. And even Paul acknowledges in Colossians, that, that this gospel is being proclaimed throughout all the world, right? All of the Roman Empire, all of the known world, and will come to be preached beyond even that. So that the, the entire world will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That was always God's intent. And so, through Jesus Christ, He offers a Savior. And that's where we come to the next point. He's proclaimed among the nations, and here's the response. Here's the acknowledgement. He's believed on in the world. This is that Christ is the Savior of all the world. We don't, what a joy it is that we can proclaim Christ and be expectant to know that men will come to believe in Him as the Lord uses us as His mouthpiece of His instrument of the gospel. We don't proclaim the Lord and the Lord's work and expect it to return void. No, we, we expect fruit when we, pro, when we preach the gospel. When we proclaim the mystery of godliness, we do so with great expectations. You know, not with doubting hearts. Right? We don't preach the gospel either with this sort of take it or leave it approach. Like, okay, you've heard it. Do what you want with it. No! <laughs> we tell them that what they have heard cannot be denied. You must believe. You must repent. Right? You must trust Christ as Lord and as Savior and give your life to Him. Knowing that He is King. This is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 23.6. In His days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. 
And this is His name by which He will be called the Lord our righteousness. And what's amazing with this, if you, about this, you connect this with what is going on in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, and it says, but in accordance to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So as the Gospel goes forward, as He is proclaimed among the nations, as He is believed on in the world, we see the spreading and the advancement of the new creation which is characterized by the presence of righteousness. And this is where we see this transformation of the world when the Gospel is proclaimed and it is to be believed. And we have to connect those two, friends. I think sometimes we just we preach the Gospel without convictions because we simply do not believe that the Lord is going to accomplish much. Right? I don't want us ever to be a church that just preaches the Gospel because God says to preach. Right? His command is good enough, yes, but there is more to it than simple obedience. It is obedience with expectation. We believe, we preach the Gospel because we believe that God, through its proclamation, will be believed. And then the world will be transformed as it believes. And that is nothing we should shy away from. This world is going, is, is being reconciled to Christ. This world will be transformed through the power of the gospel. And the world will be so full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, this new creation will be referred to as the Lord our righteousness. Right now it's called planet earth. Eventually it will be called the Lord our righteousness. All this confirmed in the scriptures. You will be believed on in the world. Right, and that's what think about the book, the Gospel of John. What is what is what is the main thrust of that book, among other things? It is to believe. It is to trust Christ. To believe in Him. And that is the anticipated result of the gospel. Not that in the long run He will be rejected, but He will be embraced as Lord and Savior and glorious King, to be loved and cherished and served. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Of the world! Through the, through the power of the cross, the effects of sin in this world will gradually be depleted until righteousness has its home here forever. First John, we're familiar with 1 John 2.2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We believe that and we preach that. And finally, closing out this statement, we acknowledge not only that he is going to be believed on in this world, but here is, here is the, here is the net effect of it. He was taken up in glory. What is the significance of Jesus being taken up in glory? What is the point of his ascension? His, the point of his ascension is that now he can sit down. Jesus being now ascended takes his place as king over the universe, right? Have any doubts about that? Read Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my, for your feet. Read Psalm chapter 2. I have set my king on Zion. And what's happening? The teeth of his enemies are being crushed. But the nations are flocking to him. The nations are called to repent, to kiss the sun, lest ye perish in the way. And this is all a beautiful fulfillment, what Paul is writing here, of what was anticipated 
in the prophets that the Lord has identified in His Son a King to rule the entirety of the cosmos. And He sits at the right hand of the Father executing His will, executing His judgment on the nations as Savior and Lord, ruling righteously through the salvation and judgment of all men. Again, all anticipated in the Old Testament. Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremiah 20, Jeremy says this too. Jeremiah 23, 5 and Isaiah 9, 7, right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. We remember that every holiday season, every Christmas season about the kingship of Christ. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the increase of his government, there will be no end. Right? We anticipate all of this. But the fact that he was taken up in glory is the, is the identification that this is actually happening. Jesus' ascension is meant to establish him as king. So now, having finished his work on earth, now he sits. He is able to rest from that labor which he accomplished perfectly, and now we live in light of His accomplishment. And we acknowledge it. Confirmed again and again in the Scriptures that Jesus is King. Don't miss that most important truth. We cannot acknowledge Jesus as Savior if we fail to acknowledge Him as King. And I will say this, fundamental to being a Christian, to having this common confession, is an acknowledgement and obedience to Jesus' Lordship. We are not, we understand we're not saved by obedience. Right? It is not a workspace righteousness, but those who truly believe, as it says before, those who truly trust in Christ alone will bow the knee to Him as King. Those who are truly righteous in Him will obey Him. We will acknowledge Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. We will proclaim that truth and we will follow Him and obey Him. And if we, if we remain in rebellion, we can't, we are a liar. We are liars. We cannot continue to say in truth, and in integrity that he, that, that he truly is our Lord if we deny His Word. And so all of these things are fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. And I hope you understand, this is our key confession, friends. But not only is it something we say, remember, it is the mystery of godliness. It is, it is internalizing and confessing these truths that lead to godliness, that lead to Christ-likeness. And these are things that we must confess again, again, and again. Not only to ourselves, but to one another. And to a watching world. And so my hope and prayer is this morning is that you would be faithful to remind yourself of those things. These are, this is our confession. And this confession will surely do its work. So, in light of that, let us pray together. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You for the power of the Gospel. We thank You that we can confess these truths and see them continue to do their work in our hearts. But also, Lord, not only as individuals, but as Your body. Lord, that these things are conducive uh, to our spiritual growth, to us coming to a greater growth in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want these things to transform us. But we must believe them. And I pray, God, that we wouldn't lose sight of them. Sometimes it's so easy to get distracted and lose sight of the most fundamental things. 
And that most fundamental thing is who Jesus is. Who Jesus is, what He has done, what He continues to do. Lord, uh, we, we, uh, we forsake any of these truths that are peril. We, we understand how they must be understood individually, but they must also operate in concert. That we acknowledge who Jesus is, but we also live obediently by faith in light of that, knowing that it's Your power at work. So I pray, Lord, that as You strengthen us, we will be faithful. That we will preach the Gospel expectantly. With, uh, that You would give us utterance. You'd preach it with, with unction and with anticipation, Lord, that You are the Savior of the world. Not just of individual people, but of nations. Of the entirety of creation. You, you reign over them, Lord. And You save them. And, and I pray, God, that that would give us great encouragement today. Um, again, so many things to, to ponder and to meditate on a day, but Lord, You are the one who gives us understanding. And so we can uh, refresh ourselves with that truth. Please, Lord, continue to receive our worship. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in Your ear. And may You be blessed uh, as we praise You in song. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.